Hi everyone, welcome to Process. Tonight, we're going to be talking to Georgia Weber. You've just come back from Angolin. Yeah. How was that? Amazing. It's first really time? great. Yeah, this is my first time in Europe, actually. So visiting Angolin was really important to me, partly to practice my French, and then also just to really see, like, all in one place, the European stuff that we only get in bits and pieces over in North America. And of course, just meeting a lot of really amazing people. The best part. You're in Canada yourself, so yeah. French obviously is part of your life mm-hmm. generally. And also, do you get more French comics than the United States of America? Because um, of the. Just, <laughs> I don't know about like Canadians in general, but I'm very perfectly situated at, in Toronto and also working for the Toronto Comic Arts Festival and having a close association with the beguiling. So Toronto itself is not very francophone. There are plenty of francophones there, they just don't have like locations in which they gather to speak so you don't necessarily hear it very often or like I honestly too if I was like I want to go practice my French today there's not a place that I could go do that unless I was paying to take a course or something which is like anywhere else but the beguiling has a very particular interest being one of the best comic shops in North America expresses a very particular interest in European comics and tries the best they can to get like as many French books as possible. We actually, the French bookstore in Toronto, the one French bookstore in Toronto shut down last year, which now makes us the largest importer of French books in the whole city, which is crazy. I'm, I'm upset about that. Like it, it just doesn't make sense. And we only bring in comics too. So it's like, there's no more pros coming into Toronto unless it's on special order or like Amazon or something. So yeah, French is not as much a part of my life as I would like it to be, but I do have access to usually read things that I want to just, takes time. <laughs> if you weren't selling at Angolan, you were going over purely as... Actually, I was there as a representative of TCAF. Ah, um, right. Which was fun. And there were a lot of us. Like, there were seven of us in total. So I was hardly a necessary cog. I was not going to fancy dinners or anything. It was just that I got a free pass. So I, I was just wandering around with this old TCAF thing, and it let me do almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty great. And um, what sort of stuff did you see? Um, the exhibits that are there, they're just like stunning, stunning exhibits. Um, there was a whole Charlie Hebdo thing which was very informative and interesting. There's like a Moomin exhibit up that totally blew my mind. Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson's like my number one ultimate hero in comics, so having his originals there was the most affecting art experience I've had in the last several years, if maybe ever. And you were saying downstairs that sort of, it's made you reflect on your process and the importance of letting people see how you're doing your work as well as the work itself. Yeah, I mean, less less how. I mean, I've always been interested in sharing my process with people. I Like, this talk is sort of perfect for me because that's what I'm doing all the time anyway. It's just trying to bring people in because I just think it doesn't have to be something that's intimidating and it is very... It's very personal, which means it's there's no like right way or wrong way. It's just like you're, you're just going to do it. So I like sharing how sloppy and crappy my process is because <laughs> then people feel like they maybe can have a crappy process too that will lead them to something kind of good. And then, I mean, yeah, seeing that stuff was actually, it was more inspiring to develop my, pra- my actual technical ability, which is something I have never cared about and in fact like railed against much of my life. Um, it was sort of the first time that I was like, oh, I, I want to be good at this. I don't want to just just tell stories. I can tell them like in particular ways and I can be expressive, but with more precision. And uh, yeah, that was the shift that I had. It was like kind of unexpected. It's interesting what you say about the way you do your work, because doing this night and I do a podcast as well, just talking to friends, everyone seems to have a particular way of doing things and everyone thinks it's wrong. Everyone's like, I'm, I'm sure this isn't how you're supposed to do comics, <laughs> but this is how I do comics. Yeah. 
And I'm like, but you're making comics. And like, I am making comics, but I'm pretty sure it's entirely wrong. Don't use this as an example. It was, uh, it was uh, on the first episode of the podcast, it was Craig Abel, and he's explaining how he uses layers of tracing paper to build up images and then sort of copies the best bits from like 14 layers of tracing paper. And that was basically I've gone to someone, yeah, I think you're doing definitely doing wrong. There's got to be a better way than that. But then you see stuff and it is remarkable. So it's very interesting to sort of think that like your stuff is fantastic, I think, in terms of like the actual craft of it as well, which we'll, we'll, we'll come on to. So but it's interesting that, you, you know, I think that's also part of, of fueling people to create as well, isn't it? The fact that I think the day that you sort of go, Nailed this, no problem. I don't even need to try it. I've got, I've got it. I can just knock it. Is when you start bringing, phoning it in and doing. Yeah, the terrible that's, stuff. yeah, that's terrible. I'm like not even trying to get there to be honest, because <laughs> it's yeah, it's nowhere. That's that's an arrival at absolutely nowhere. No, I think and and the like tracing paper thing to me actually it sounds kind of smart in a way, and and you see people doing things like that not with tracing paper but with regular paper on lightboards and doing exactly the same thing. It's like I sort of do that, but. Uh, but it, in a like sloppier way that includes a lot of like photoshopping, pulling things together. I mean, I can even show you some of this stuff. For example, this page. This page is not at all like this page is a little bit how it appears later. Like this is probably one of the closest to just drawing it straight and it ending up in a book that I get. Because then after I go in and like clean things and tweak them so much with Photoshop, and I like half the time I think that if I just sat down at a like table. I could have redrawn it in a moment and it would have been faster, <laughs> but I am not, at this point I'm so far along in the series that changing my method right now would be a bad idea, but I feel like for the next thing I could do that. And I also, at this point in my work, I'm doing a lot of like layering things and I, I sort of select the best moments from something, from several pages of drawing. Like, I analog cut stuff out too. Like I flat out just I drew a page and I was like, this page is stupid, but this drawing is good. So I <laughs> just like cut the rest of the page away so that I wouldn't have to look at it anymore. <laughs> and then just like kept the part I wanted. And like you know, in all my originals, actually this one has one of these. If I'm doing something and I think it's terrible and I need to redraw it, I just put a little X next to it. It's me being like you can't forget that that's bad because I might look at it <laughs> I might look at it later and just think like yep that page is done great because I'm not being careful about it I need to like show myself like you, you did that bad you need to go again so um, I don't know I kind of I like the, the tracing idea I just I think that that would that is definitely a personality that's more interested in perfection and I I am often more interested in chaos so I've, I've really like not been interested in those um even those tools, like I have a light box now, but I just acquired it recently, and, and that idea only occurred to me to use it in a way where I was like, maybe one day it'll have some, maybe one day I'll use it in my own way, basically, and and not the way that everyone else does, but yeah, with this newfound interest in technique, you may see me at my light box a lot more often. <laughs> so you, you said you were at Anglem on behalf of TCAF, mm -hmm. uh, what's your role at TCAF? Um, well, we're a volunteer-run festival, so all roles are pretty nebulous. Like, I, I'm the guest services coordinator, which basically means that I am one of the people who handles guests directly when they come, and that's like our sort of invited guests from overseas, in particular French guests, because I can speak to them. And then before the festival and leading up, I do things like program the Word Balloon Academy with my friend Kim Hong. And we do, that's like a creator-focused day, so it's a day actually before the festival begins, because people who are tabling and like doing programs themselves can't actually attend any workshops or any of the, the like round tables that we have. 
Um, so we set up this day before that's like partly skill development and partly like how to be a professional artist. So we do like, there's always a financial workshop and there'll always be a like injury prevention for cartoonists. And, and then on the other flip side, it's like painting, like, you know, someone who's really great at watercolor, we'll draw them in just so that people who are interested in trying it out get a little instruction. Um, and that's what festivals are for, is like bringing peers together and allowing people to learn from each other and just like humanize each other too, because it's so easy to like put your favorite artist up on a pedestal. Um, and then to appreciate people as well and like give people access to to new things and things that they really, really want. So yeah, I do, and I do a lot of the boring stuff too. It's just like I run the Tumblr sometimes and uh, yeah, like you have to coordinate schedules of guests who are coming in. It's just like spreadsheets and discovering more and more that I may not be able to learn that skill. <laughs> um, I've been trying so hard and it's just like, maybe I shouldn't be the person who's in charge of details like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do a lot of like just handling people. And you, you table yourself. I do, that's the other thing. I work on the festival all the way up until the morning of like 9 a.m. the Saturday, then I just go sit at a table all day and sell books. And then like after I'm done selling books, just get out and check in with everyone and see if I have to bring things to places or like help someone do something and then try to see friends. And it's always this insane, like really hilarious in a kind of sad way experience for my friends who are coming because I love them and I really want to see them and they're all here and it's so great that they're in my hometown I should really spend time with them and mostly they just see this blur that is me like running <laughs> across the hall like room to room and it's yeah I wish that was an exaggeration it's absolutely the truth <laughs> yeah um, we should have said at the start that TCAF is the Toronto Comic Art Festival um, in case you haven't pieced it together from Toronto <laughs> Festival yeah and how many years have you been involved with yeah, I started volunteering about seven years ago, and I just have sort of ramped it up every year. Just like a general, like, um, you know, stand at a door, guide people around, volunteer. And then a couple of years ago, I sort of, yeah, stepped in ahead of time and said, like, hey, if you guys need help now, it was like January or something. And I said, if you need help now, like, I have time, you know, need anything, just throw it at me. So we started to build from that. And now I'm, I'm settled in this position. I think it's probably as much responsibility as I want, to be honest. But there's this whole artistic career that's happening simultaneously, you know. I don't know. I don't know how those things are going to coexist. Because when you first like volunteered, I'm guessing you weren't creating comics in the same yeah. way you are now. So not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, so it's I, almost like your involvement in the festival has grown as you're doing more things that would involve you being involved in the festival. So it's, it's sort of grown yeah. on on two parts, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and oddly more synchronous than I thought of for this moment, um, because I was not making comics almost at all. Like, I made comics during high school just for a very brief stint when I got really excited about them and was just drawing them all the time. It was, like, maybe four months or five months from just drawing them a lot. And then really, like, got sidetracked and was doing other things for a while. And throughout all those years, I was still volunteering for TCAF, but in that very, like, general volunteer way of, like, a few hours here, a few hours there, only during the festival. And at the point that I was deciding... Well, I mean, this ties directly into the work that I'm making right now. Like, I... I uh, had these problems with my voice begin in 2012, which was the festival that I first sort of expressed to them, like, I want to do more. Um, and then it was that winter, like, the January that came after, when I had already been, like, out of work and not speaking for a few months, and I just had all this time on my hands. And I was making this comic, but I was also, like, you know, making this comic for a few hours a day, maybe have so much more time than that to help out and it's a lot of emailing so it was like hey guys I'm, I'm around like I was in Montreal at the time but that's actually when they really pulled me in and said like oh yeah you're you're so available like of course please start doing this stuff 
And so I was making this comic at the same time, and that was like that was the year that I debuted one and two, which was really my first public comic that I made and like sold and and that was like a pivotal point for both the festival and well for for me being a part of the festival and then for the work that I started doing. And yeah, they both just like ramped up insanely since then. So because initially you you were involved in comics um, with like Gangland was it was more sort of administrative and enabling other people to create sort of put it yeah. together. <laughs> Do you want to tell me what what Gangland was? Yeah, I'd love to. I still like I love that project a lot. Actually, there's someone who contributed to a Gangland issue in the room today. It, it was it was my like incredible discovery that that comics could be done like however by whoever and and this like amazing experience of a teacher I'd had like really fostering me into this understanding of comics that I was like I need to give other people these feelings like I need to show other people that this is something they can do too and like I love the idea of inclusive process and I love the idea of peer editing specifically I mean editing at all because it doesn't happen all that often in comics and then peer-to-peer is sort of the way that we've managed to make it work without like a, an editorial structure that includes, like a publishing structure that actually includes having an editor review and change, uh, request changes in your work. So I was looking at that as like it's going to be kind of a collective thing and I'll just be the driving force that makes sure everything gets done and like wrangles people together. And obviously I thought at the, at the beginning I would be contributing to that, but there's just no, there's just no way. Like I did a couple things and they were very small and I was very like unhappy with how much time I had given them. And then I was really just passionate about making sure other people were included and enjoying themselves. And, you know, I made a lot of really dumb mistakes too, which is interesting or maybe not interesting except to me. That, I mean, I've learned a lot from it and the publishing that I do now is almost all because I've done so much of it before. And by so much, I mean, we made four issues. It like wasn't crazy, but I was super ambitious with each one of them and like worked so hard and and like looked at lots of things trying to you know find inspiration and like make it a really interesting object for people so i mean i still really really believe in everything that i was trying to do i think i could do it way better now and that'd be awesome but i'm not interested in that kind of work anymore like the all all the administration i want to do i'm satisfied at tcaf that's like you know, I could not handle any more coordination of things. Um, so the rest of the time, I'm really more invested in just getting my own stuff out there. And of course, self-publishing, there's plenty of administration and technical things that you have to take yeah, care of yourself. Yeah, you do so much anyway. It's like, exactly, like with Dom, I mean, I, I still, do, I make my own spreadsheets. I make spreadsheets for myself, even though I hate them. Because <laughs> it's important. I don't know, I just like keep things organized and I don't lose things that are really necessary. I, I feel actually pretty on top of that stuff. Um, I know a lot of self-publishers are sort of, they feel like they're just like gasping to tread water even, and I feel pretty, quite comfortable here. I'm like, I could swim like this for a while. But I mean, I'm curious about where else I could go. So hopefully that'll be soon enough, like I get to experience not being on the administrative side of publishing and just being the person who made something and is being helped, <laughs> like to be helped. You, you have a, an end point in terms of done. Uh, how many issues are you planning on maybe? 10 and they'll all be out this spring right yeah i kind of do things in batches because i mean self-publishing i don't have a lot of money to just like throw at each thing and i can get batch publishing gives me a bit of a discount when i go to the printer so and then there's tcaf which is the, the best place for me to launch anything because it's my hometown and i work for the festival and it's like one of the biggest festivals in north america so i really shoot for that as a goal every year that i'm putting things out and this year I needed to spend, yeah, just like all my time pulling those issues together so that I can print them all at the same time and have them ready and then tour them for the rest of the summer. So 
that's that's happening. I'm I'm not entirely done the artwork for that, but I'm somewhere in the middle. The dub will finish this year. The will finish this year, yeah. And have you got an idea about your next project? I'm already doing it. I yeah, I, I publish comics on a website called The Hairpin, which is an American site that is very focused on women, um, which I love. I'm very very happy to be hosted there. And it's actually, I, I did bring a little bit of that too, because it's very different. It was sort of, the next idea was sort of born of like massive anxiety problems that I have. And then also the fact that I, I was so anxious about addressing the subject of anxiety that I waited till like four or five days before the deadline that I had to send in the first one. And then I didn't have the option of using my normal process, which includes like, little thumbnail things and then like sketching it out kind of in pencil and then going over that in ink and then taking everything into Photoshop and then like redrawing things and taking it back. I just, I didn't have time so I grabbed a china marker and now like that comic looks like this. Like it's just, it's this really thick black like crayon and everything is the, is the first thing I've drawn. I just like lay it down. And because it's being read vertically too, I don't pay as much attention to pages and I just pay attention to like a single flow. Uh, which means that when I draw a page like this, I can do the same thing I normally do, just like cut it and move it, which I do a lot. Like these ones I actually don't even, I don't plan them and I don't do anything sequentially. I'm just like, I make a little list. Oh, actually I have the list. I'll just put it down. I make a little list. This looks like nothing, but <laughs> to the people who are further away. But it's basically just like bullet points of the moments that I want to share, and I understand their significance. Maybe they're clear in my notes, but I've never really asked anyone else if they are. Uh, and then I just make sure that I have all of them there, and then as I'm reading it, then I, then I sort of chop things up and start moving them around and look and see if there's anything missing. The more I've been doing this, the more I actually would like to see it published you know, on paper. Like, it's just online right now, which is great, but I love books. I love paper so much. I'm like, if I have all this work, I, I'd love it to be something that I can hold and like give to people. Would you anticipate a problem in terms of formatting for the page, just with how you've done it? Not really. They're mostly like, yeah, the, the way that I draw them being usually these sort of vertical, or sorry, horizontal strips. Sometimes sequentially, top to bottom, they matter, but for the most part, it's just like, I've, I've made them in these chunks that I can then, you know, slice and move around. So slicing and moving them around for the sake of a page is pretty much the same process. It's just that I haven't actually made that effort yet. And you also, uh, you're the comics editor at uh, Carte Blanche, mm -hmm. um, which means you're commissioning work and taking submissions. Is that yeah. how that, that's put together? Yeah, it's supposed to be taking submissions, but it's really hard to get people to submit. They just, like, have a million reasons not to, I guess. So I do end up calling people up and being like, I'm really interested, please send something. I'm really interested, I just need like a short thing and it, it shouldn't be much because our honorarium is very small, so, you know, whatever you can throw us will be such a, an awesome thing to have. And that's kind of the whole job, it's like very low key for me. <laughs> I just get to read comics and decide which ones belong together and then say no to the ones that I'm not interested in, but it's like a fun thing to hunt down, specifically Canadian cartoonists. I was going to say, is it They're a, up there, a, 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 a target in a particular thing when you're, mm. yeah. Mostly Canadian because we do get grants and we have to focus on Canadian content, which I'm very happy for too because it's so easy to just look south. Like there's so many, there are so many people in the States that 
you know, the relationship. Like, I, I actually think that I can count the number of Canadian cartoonists there are. It's probably under 100. At least the ones that are very public, obviously. I'm not going to say that's all of them that exist. But, and I, I'm not good at including either, like, superhero stuff. But actually, my estimate of 100 is including a gracious, like, 40 or 50 for the people who might be in that industry that I don't know about. But, like, I could really, I, I could, like, think hard and run down a list of probably 40 or 50 Canadian cartoonists, and I'd be... Uh, yeah, I'd be hard-pressed to find more than that. Um, I feel these are really bold things that I'm saying because they're just based on my experience, but I don't know, I'm pretty involved, so I like <laughs> to think I have a little bit of authority to say something like that. It's interesting, I'm, I'm sure you're right in your figures, but there, there's you know a, a decent number of, of big-name Canadian cartoons that we think of, you know, in Europe, we've sort of said. Yeah. Well, the phrase the phrase that comes up a lot when you start talking about Canadian comics is that Canadian cartoonists punch above their weight class. I've heard that exact phrase so many times that I just I guess that's what we say now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very much like okay, there are so many fewer of us. So like, I guess you would assume within the laws of like proportions, just the proportion of the population of Canada to the proportion of the United States, that we should have far fewer cartoonists who actually do really well. But no, like of the 40 or 50 that I would mention to you, like 35 of them are pretty decently known. That's a huge proportion. And like the 15 others are just on their way. Like I'm watching their careers go. And uh, that's, that's pretty amazing. Like it's pretty amazing just to be surrounded by people who are succeeding, even if it's kind of in this quiet way, because like we don't have as many publishing houses in our country. We don't have as big a market. So it's not like you're going to succeed at home and just be this like big celebrity there. But, I mean, you can get up to the same place as many other American cartoonists, and it's like it's likely when you begin work. Like, maybe the small community fosters more more progress more quickly, or I really don't know, like, what the reason is, but I'm glad for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of you uh, becoming interested in comics, mm -hmm. who, who were the first sort of creators that you enjoyed and inspired you to, to think about making comics yourself? Well, I was really... I was reading Calvin and Hobbes for a long time, not really thinking about it as something like a job or that I wanted to do. Um, it was just something I read all through my teenage years as a very like uplifting, like private, solo thing. And then it was when I had a boyfriend who gave me a Julie Doucet book that I sort of realized like, oh, whoa, comics can just be like whatever you want. They're not just these strips in the newspaper and they're not just like big serious stories because I was kind of aware of some of the graphic novels you were um, from people like Seth or Chester Brown, like those things were sort of coming out in a way that I would have been maybe aware, but just not. They don't feel accessible as something that like you can do this too because they're so perfectionist about their line and like it's just you know these sort of serious and, and not melancholy, but just like no, they are melancholy. <laughs> okay, yeah. So melancholy stories, uh, which doesn't appeal to me as much as as other things. Like Julie's work is really like this totally expressive and playful and sometimes totally nonsensical storytelling that I, when I read that, my first thought was just like, oh, I don't have to do the things those other people did. Perfect, I can do this. <laughs> like, and then I just got so excited and like from there, I actually ended up taking an extra year of high school with a teacher at the school who was really enthusiastic about comics and we did an independent study together and he just like threw things at me that had really special significance to him and also that we would then talk about and dissect and that was like 
the Sandman and and Mouse and just like the the books that you would expect anybody to read, which all impacted me in that way of being a beginner who's like learning what the medium is. But actually now the people who I would still say are like favorite cartoonists who still influence me all the time, I did discover pretty early, but I've like hung on to, are people like Joseph Lambert and uh, Gabby Schultz or Ken Dahl and like Bill Watterson, we, in that course that I took with that teacher, like we spent like two solid months just talking about Calvin and Hobbes. And so I just appreciate, like I, I just appreciate him so much more for having had that time to like analyze it in the most nerdy way possible. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also, also finding that like my peers are really inspiring because we reached a point where they're not trying as much to like find a legitimate place. They're actually just pushing themselves to see what they can do, which is really what I'm interested in doing too. So I'm not... Uh, it's not necessarily like the most famous or well-known or, or even most talented people. It's just the people who are like really exploring their method of expression. It's interesting that as you get into comics, you get this opportunity to almost study them. You know, you uh, just well, do. You just yeah. yeah. You just start doing which, it. Which like, isn't a, <laughs> doesn't happen for a lot of people to have someone that's prepared to sort of guide you personally through it oh, and also to. Oh yeah. Yeah, that but, was, but also to, yeah. to, to look at it in a particular way, to examine it as an academic piece. Yeah, and, and that, I think that combined with the, the, the work you did in terms of putting together the anthology and, and commissioning work for the website, do you feel that sort of immersion in appreciating comics technically has helped you as a career? I mean, yes, like absolutely. You know, every every part of my life that comics have been in has been a, a very important influence. Like, I couldn't wish any part of it not there. But I certainly think that, like, there are many people who would not think of comics as something they could do with other people, or with other people looking over their shoulder, or with other people, like, actually helping, asking questions. Like, the, really, the editorial process. Like, I had a very strong and very good experience with it so early on that, to me, it's just, like, it's necessary at this point. And I find I get a lot of resistance from cartoonists when I mention that, or when I try to offer the idea that like editing would be a good thing um, in general, not even for them, but they get very like, oh no, not me, like I, I could never, I could never trust another person's judgment with my work, like I'm the only person whose judgment I trust enough to, to like criticize. I think that's unhealthy. I, I just think that you should be, you should be able to find at least a person, a couple of people who you can open up to with this vulnerability and just, it, your work will get better. Like that's just, it's unquestionable, it will. And I mean, yeah, having an understanding of that, but also this feeling of like, I really came from zine culture and DIY everything and had this very, you know, that was for me a reaction to the way that I hated being told how to do things and what to do all the time. So maybe also like my personality is, is more of a driving force in, in understanding comics in that particular way. but. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> those both were, like, critical for shaping how I am now. And I, I've only kind of... Things I used to rail against when I was thinking that way, where I was feeling like, you know, the way that I thought about stuff was so new and fresh and I really wanted people to see it that way. I couldn't understand why they would do it in these more conventional, like, personal, you know, me shutting myself up in my room way. Now I can actually see that. Like, as being a creator helps you, like, move through those, those processes yourself means... I'm not like judging them from the outside anymore. I'm actually like in the experience and still finding my way through like what my preferences are. In terms of you being in favor of editing, who do you trust who you pass your work on to to get feedback? Well, people whose work I like, that's first of all the most important thing. Obviously friends, like I, I'm actually quite happy to show my work to like someone who's interested. It just has to be, if I'm gonna like really go through 
the process of like getting questions from them and getting feedback from them and running it down in conversation. Obviously, it's an investment of time, so I want to like enjoy their company and, and trust them as much as possible. And then, like professionally, there aren't a lot of opportunities for that. So it really turns into just I'm looking at like other cartoonists around me, or often what I do too is just ask a friend to read it who's not drawing comics because I really want to know if if I'm drawing something that's too self-reflexive, like that is assuming too much. I need to make sure that they can follow it, having no experience with it whatsoever. So I kind of I, I like throw in this mix of people. <laughs> yeah, I think people who don't normally read comics are a great sort of uh, audience. For sure, if and they sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, sometimes they can't, but not because I wasn't clear, but because they're just really not used to it. And that's a really interesting thing, because I'm basically introducing them to the idea of reading comics by asking them to help me, which also lends them a, a certain authority. Like, there's an autonomy that they have when I say, like, yeah, you don't know anything about this, but your opinion still matters. It's like, you don't have to be on the inside of this of this game to get it. Like, you, anyone can get it. And hopefully then they're like, oh yeah, I do get it, and I do want to do this more. This is interesting in this way. I mean, that's what I hope for. Obviously, I'm not tracking everyone down after and being like, so, have you read any comics since we looked at mine? But I do really hope that's what they're doing. So in, in terms of Dumbledore's project, do you want to just uh, tell people about the genesis of it, the incident in your life that sort of led to it being created? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, in, in spring of 2012, I, you know, got a sore throat, as many of us do, but it just kind of persisted over the summer and got quite a bit worse. And I was really, I am really chatty. I love talking. So... You know, perhaps I, I pushed it more than other people would have just for the sake of being able to continue my life sort of normally. And then by, like, the fall of that year, it was so bad that it hurt even when I wasn't talking. It hurt so badly when I was talking that I was, like, I was just losing my mind. Like, I was so scared. And I, I went to the doctor, and they were basically just like, you have, like, strained it pretty bad, and it's going to take a while for it to get better, and so, like, just drink lots of water and rest, and, like, I hope you don't have to talk at your job too much, and, you know, I'll check in on you in six months, and I was just like, that's unacceptable, like, I can't, I can't actually, like, talk at all, and I'm in so much pain, and you're not helping me, but I, you know, couldn't do anything, so I just did, like, some sort of minor research and was like, okay, I have to, I actually have to rest this drastically in order to speed up this process. So I stopped talking for all but like 15, half an hour a day for, uh, basically I was just doing that until it didn't hurt anymore. But like two or three months later, you know, I had, I had quit my job and I'd like gone on welfare and I'd been struggling with trying to figure out like what my future plans would be. Cause I had assumed maybe it'd be a couple weeks. And after that point passed and passed again and like, you know, nothing was changing. Yeah, it just basically, I had to I had to keep pushing and going back to doctors and like keep figuring it out just like week by week because they're also incapable of giving me a prognosis or like an idea of when it would be over. And pretty much right away I was like, this is an insane experience that I'm having. I have wanted to make comics for so long and I've been so afraid ever since like I had stopped making them several years before I had just gotten really like paralyzed by the great stuff I was seeing around me and this idea that I would never be able to make something like that. And this was just like, well, it hits, like, this story hits all the right points. Like, it's a personal story, so I'm talking from my own perspective. I have, like, a wealth of experiences to draw on, and then I have all this time. Like, like I'm, I don't have a job, and I'm just, I'm trying to be quiet, so I shouldn't be around people very much. There's no excuse to not draw this right now. 
So I started taking crazy notes and then started making this thing and that was a whole other like very painful experience of sort of recovering from like my own fears and recovering from the way that I was really like talking myself down and beating myself up. So yeah, it's, it's like been a great experience. And dumb catalogs, as much of that as I think is relevant, I do sort of a selective version of autobio that's really more about, I'm really more trying to convey a point or give you like a certain thought or give you the experience that led me to that thought, which means that the things that happen are like mostly chronological and like mostly accurate, but they do, I sort of all sort of like pulls things from different places if I need to, just to give you in the space of one issue, a particular idea or experience. And in terms of it as a piece, mm-hmm. obviously it's a silent medium, but you're talking about noise and the absence of noise. Mm-hmm. And you made particular choices in terms of how you were going to portray noise in the comic. Do you want to talk about how you came to that decision? Yeah, well, so the first thing that happened to me when I stopped being able to talk was just it was so apparent like how much people take advantage of their voices and how much noise specifically how many voices there are just like surrounding us all the time and in a silent medium when most of the time you have like you know something happening and then the background and it's just a visual description of the background I had to figure out like a way to give an auditory description of the background and if I was going to go into describing like basically the soundscape of each thing that I was drawing Drawing every sound would be insane. There'd be no room for anything else. But to, to highlight voices, which is the center of the project, I decided to do it in black and white. And then uh, every voice that appears is actually red. So whenever you see a voice, even if it's even if it's not talking, like even if it's just some shapes or something, it's a voice or many voices, which is the thing I find people aren't really getting yet. And I think that's that's a little bit by design. Like I have um, issues eight and nine, sort of like bring that home so they're not it's not like explicitly described yet but it's just it's a tool that I'm using throughout that you'll see right away and also in in terms of it as comics it seems (coughs) rich in a lot of sort of emanata and sound effects and a lot of of, of visual effects within the comic to represent actions and sounds do you think that's part of of you thinking about it in terms of non-verbal communication yeah, things like the stars representing pain. Yeah, that's that's not so much me thinking about nonverbal communication. That's just me obsessing over the form. That's like that's just me uh, challenging myself to like do the thing that comics can do best every single time. And it's it's always like specific to the point of the story. Like I was describing earlier, each each thing. Like I'm I'm trying to lead you towards a specific idea or an experience, and so that idea or experience is best served by the medium in what way and I like pick that apart and try to use I like I've been described as like formalist and like high concept and stuff and like sure that's that's totally real I just also am very like I those those things to me imply a sort of like not pretension but like a an inaccessibility that I, I work really hard not to have as well and in fact like the stars in particular are uh, and a specific nod to both Gabby Schultz and Bill Watterson, who do the same thing. Like, that's where that idea came from. And the whole thing of them being in the comic, I was like, both of those people use these stars. They always mean some kind of pain or surprise. But I'm going to put them in, and, like, what I can do in comics is, like, use this thing that you're seeing, but is not obviously physically there, 
as like a as a physical thing. Like so, you know, when it, when stars appear at the beginning of the comic, you're seeing me sort of like like grab them and put them in my pocket or like knock them away because you know I'm I'm pushing myself beyond that kind of pain. But I think starting with that device, like starting with that idea, just made me look for that kind of idea in every other story I was trying to tell. So it's much more about my obsession with comics than it is about the nonverbal communication. And you've said that Dumb is it's a wider project uh, than comics. You, you're doing other aspects mm. of it as well. It's interesting because like when when I was talking earlier about not having any interest in being technically skilled at this thing, it also means that I wasn't, and I'm still not entirely sure I'm interested in like being a cartoonist. I don't want to like like what I say is I don't I'm not interested in being good at something. I just want to do things, and I'm. It, it means that like whatever I do, I'm doing my best, but I'm not doing it just for the sake of being good at it. Which has changed, like that, that Moomin exhibit and that Bill Watterson thing, like they really made me look at it as like, oh no, I, I kind of do want to learn to be good at this because I just think that this, then the stories I tell would be more powerful. So maybe I'm sort of shifting back to like wanting to be a cartoonist again. But I actually have a really strong interest, as you can tell like through the sound in the comics, in sound, in just in its own thing. Um, and with a, a project about voices, I feel very strongly that there should be the opportunity to actually use voices to explore voice. And so I have sort of like a radio podcast thing that I've got in, in my back pocket that I've been slowly working on for like basically the whole time I've been doing this. Like right from the beginning when I started writing the comics, I also sent out emails to my friends being like, hey, could you like record yourself answering these questions for me and send me the files? And I have like Oh God, I think I have like 30 of those or something, and I just haven't had time to do both at the same time, and obviously that's a splitting of emotional, or of creative, actually, creative and emotional energy that I wasn't able to do, and I'm sort of looking forward to the end of the comics so that I can actually swing over and dedicate a lot more time to that project. And then, I mean, I hopefully could have time to make the comics at the same time, but like none of these things ha have money or pay. So I also have to find a job. <laughs> we'll see how long it takes for that to come out. But in the meantime, I've been including, in each of these smaller editions, there's an introduction that I asked someone to write for me that's like sort of a precursor to the podcast idea where I'm like asking them to describe in their own words some relationship to voice that they have that I'm not going to discuss in the comics at all. So the first one actually is from my vocal coach who I was working with in Montreal for a little bit, just about like your voice as this instrument and like how to think about it, and another one's from like a music writer who really loves screaming in music, and another one's from a woman who worked as like a call line, like a helpline um, respondent who like, I forget what it was, it was like a crisis center or something, so she was, she was listening to people talk all the time, and then like the emotional experience of understanding them through their voices and like sharing her own or not, and yeah, like I, I really just try, I'm trying to draw as many people in on this as possible because I really believe that the subject of voice is universal and I do not have something to say about every part of it. I don't have experiences of, of every part of it. So I really want to know what other people's experiences are and then I really want this to be like a platform for everyone to share their experiences and connect to each other. Do you find that doing the different aspects of the project allows it to be promoted more widely than just comics? So that must help in a way? We'll see, because um, so far I really only have these little introductions that are a part of the comics themselves, so they're not getting publicity on their own. I've actually have, I've gotten some feedback on specifically the things that were written, which is nice, like people getting in touch and saying like, oh, the introduction to that one book, and I'm like, yeah, that person is really awesome. They have really cool things to say. 
So we'll see, like, when the radio stuff comes out later, if that's... I, I can imagine it would be useful, like, cross-promotion, whatever, marketing jargon, blah, blah, blah. Just getting into more spaces, I think, isn't it? That's the... the yeah, thing. I mean, As an idea, not necessarily mm-hmm. physically, more spaces. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and for me, it's more about... I think that projects travel further when they involve more people, because then they're interesting to more people. It's not just one person who has, you know all the things to say that everyone's just going to get and like. It's, it's much better when there are more people involved and there's dynamic content that, you know, can be accessed from all kinds of different angles and you can like part of it but not another part and it doesn't condemn the whole thing. In terms of promotional things, though, you've been quite creative about how you've gone out and, and uh, talked about the work. Well, not talked about the work. Um, I'm thinking of the, the Silent Comics Nights. Yeah. The one at uh, Floating World. Uh, yeah, yeah, that one was really interesting. I mean, they're all really interesting, and I'll probably, I'd like to keep doing it, but it was definitely that sort of extra energy of, like, organizing things that I realized after I did them, I was like, I still don't really want to do this, but that was cool, but I don't know, maybe I'll find a way. Um, It was just to have a, a gathering like this, except for the first chunk of the night before we actually started to perform... Uh, everyone in the room was unable to talk and I made them all little, I, I gave them paper and pens and just forced them to communicate that way, which does create kind of an awkward feeling, like having no sound in the room, people just get uncomfortable physically and like that's an experience I want them to have because it's like really significant and often taken advantage of or taken for granted I should say. So yeah, and then I did one where, the one in Portland where like all of us as performers didn't speak, so we had like projections and, you know, everyone had to interpret that their own way. One girl just showed the projections, the next girl showed the projections but was mouthing the words as if she was reading along, reading along with them. And then I have this presentation that I do which is like really integrated with the project, so it has, I actually do like handwriting on the projections in the things that I would say out loud, but like it's it's to the format of being projected, and then includes little bits of my work, and then at the end has like a dramatic moment where I remove my lipstick and then I actually do talk to people, <laughs> and that for th- this performance because I went right at the end gave us the cue of like okay everyone is can talk now and let's discuss like how that was, which was yeah it was it was really unique and strange very strange, and I, I like those experiences but I definitely want to do them more just to have it be refined because it was all so experimental that I wasn't even able to like guide it to make it better for people. I was just seeing in the moment like what would happen. And ones after that were, were less structured and there was sort of less time that we weren't talking and it wasn't, it wasn't with more people, it was just me, so yeah. So at first it was about sort of just looking at how the energy changes in the room, but you'd like to sort of focus it a bit more and, and get people to think a bit more about how they're going to communicate about the... Yeah, I mean, well, that one was more just, I, I just wanted to know what would happen if you forced everyone to stop talking, like, because in my, the situations in my life when I'm not talking, it's just me, everyone else is doing it, so that's a totally different experience, but I just wanted to see what would happen if nobody could talk to each other, and then the performance that I mentioned that I do, which is, like, made for these experiences when someone asks me to read, and, like, everyone else will be reading except me, and I have to be, like, the performance has to explain what's going on while also showing stuff, um, and then giving an experience as well. Like I did that one at TCAF last year where I didn't ask the room full of people to stop talking, but I did make like a little sign and I put some buttons out with paper and pencils and I was bringing my friends over all for the beginning of the night being like, you know, read this. It said, if you put on a button right now, you're not going to be able to talk. As long as the button's on, you can't talk. You have to write everything you want to and like just go out into the crowd and do your thing. And then during the performance, 
um, at the end when like when I sort of was getting to the moment that I would take my lipstick off and start talking to people I actually before that point I invited those people up and in, and for them to talk and say like what was your experience not speaking in this room full of people and got them to like ask questions to each other and like get the audience in on that again because like I'm not going to be like my perspective is not that interesting forever like I really want other people to to have their own say because it's not something like the thing that happened to me is not unique to me I'm a person who had this experience and all of us are people who could potentially have this experience um, and it's so valuable like feeling it yourself is so much better than hearing me talk about it I mean in terms of specifically the event important did you notice that when people were allowed to talk again they were talking more than you'd normally get at that point in the crowd Actually, that I, I have no idea. Was there a Q&A? Um, <laughs> there was a Q&A at the end, but like those people who came up, uh, or the people who had been silent and then who came up and talked on stage, uh, there were like maybe eight of them, and the crowd was like 60 people, so I wasn't really following them around after to hear whether or not they had returned to speaking or speaking more. Or, but like the things they had to say were interesting. Um, one person was like, I don't really know anyone here, so I was silent, but I just kind of sat back and just like I was writing in my journal. So it felt okay, but I was aware that I like couldn't if I wanted to. And another person was like, "That was so hard!" Like I was <laughs> trying to talk, and I just gesturing and like, yeah, she was really affected by that. And was anyone got any questions? You talked about um, a sort of a cathartic process where sort of putting some your anxiety project you've got coming up now and the voice thing as well. Do you ever feel like you've put yourself out there a little bit too much, and it's not? it's not maybe a good thing to have so much exposed. Do you mean in terms of like how other people see me or like my just my life, like how I feel? Yeah, is it always cathartic? Is it always good for you? Yeah, I haven't had any bad experiences yet. I'm not going to say I won't ever. But generally I have no problem being super vulnerable to people. I just need the opportunity to take care of myself after that fact, with which comics is very easy because you sort of put them out there and then like people read them on their own time, it's not like performance where it's happening and like all my energy is going right in front of you and then you're there after, like, it's, I, yeah, I find this conducive to the way that I process things, so maybe I'll have a different experience later. I've also never had the horrible experiences that many women do when they put things about themselves online in particular that, you know, absolutely I'm comfortable being vulnerable because it's always been very well received. And it hasn't hurt me to do that, but it could very easily. You know, some of the things that I, I write about, especially in this anxiety thing, like one of them that will be coming out in a little while, uh, has some like sex in it and stuff. And I could, I can see how that might turn very bad for me. And I'm sure that I would be quite damaged by it. I'm just like a very sensitive person. So hopefully never, but I really, it's the internet and people are terrible sometimes. So mm. I can expect that. And I have to know that. I might need to have like a plan for when that happens to take care of myself afterwards. I know a young woman in her early 20s who's going through something in the early stages, something kind of similar to what you went through. I'm very anxious about it and quite down and thinks her life is never going to be the same and she's not going to achieve the things she wants to achieve. Would, would reading Dumb be helpful for her? You've got, you got five issues into a ten issue project so maybe reading the first five might not be so helpful maybe like sh I should wait until there's ten <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well clearly you can now talk mm -hmm. I hope without pain uh, one assumes without not sometimes actually 
like I'm projecting quite a bit right now and we've been talking for coming up to like 45 minutes mm. I'm getting close to a place mm -hmm. where it's starting to hurt I'm not there yet but it will happen to me soon enough you know that depends on lots of different things too so I won't say that's like a hard sure. goal of 45 minutes but happier you know, than you're in a happier place than you were yeah, absolutely. A while back. Which is actually like not necessarily related to the project. And this is a thing I've been trying to convey, but it's been very hard, very hard to show. Uh, at the beginning of all of this, I was totally fine. I like I was in the probably the best place in my life I've ever been when this happened to me, which also made the explanation of you must just be stressed and have strained this and like you're reacting to stress made no sense to me. And was upsetting in, in that way, because I was like, you're giving me an answer that normally would be totally accurate, but for the last few months doesn't apply. So it was actually really good, like my attitude was great at the beginning, um, though every time people read the first couple issues they tell me it's really sad. So I don't know, I guess I just like failed at, at showing off that part, but actually what I'm doing in the later issues is showing how like the longer it went on, the more upset I got. So the earlier issues to me are less sad. <laughs> And I feel kind of bad that if people are already upset, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to get a lot more upset in a little mm -hmm. bit. But then everything will be okay, and and okay in the sense of, like, I have more perspective on it now. Which, like, the, the sadness and the feeling of, like, your life is different, it's never going to be the same. I definitely started to feel that later, but right at the beginning I could see, like, the decision to stop talking altogether, except for that short amount every day, which was basically just to prevent my muscles from atrophying. The decision to stop talking altogether, I was like, this is how I'll get back to that place faster. I knew that I was going to get back there. And then it was the longer it went on that I was like, wait, am I? It, I, I hope so, but really? This is like months and months? Like, what is happening? Honestly, I think, like, you know, I don't know this person. I do not know how they would take something like this. But I have also had people with chronic illnesses react by responding to, especially the second issue, actually, saying, like, oh, like, thank you for putting this down because I've totally had that experience. And not feeling alone is one mm -hmm. of the most important mm -hmm. things for any person anywhere going through anything. Mm -hmm. Feeling alone in it, like, you may just never come out. And, and not, like, yeah, even if it is something that's going to last forever and change your life forever, like, you cannot embrace it feeling like you're the only person who's going through it. So I would hope that, that she could have the same experience, but I really can't, like, read into that. I, yeah just cross my fingers and say if she wants to email me she can like, well I guess I'll read it first and see if, <laughs> see if Louise if I can <laughs> if I can guess how she might respond but, yeah. um, I have one other very quick very simple question too sure. are you, do you have or are you working towards a, a book deal for, for the collected story once you've got your ten issues out yeah yeah I have an agent which is nice because it means she can approach people and be like Georgia likes your stuff and it sounds really professional <laughs> and also just because she can she knows this stuff better than me um, just slightly actually I have a pretty good handle on, on publishing but yeah it's like I don't I don't know exactly when it's gonna happen I can say I'm not really in a rush because I want it done well I don't really care about it being done quickly so yeah it, it's in the works I don't know if there's no particular news to offer there. <laughs> I've been stalking you on Twitter. Um, oh, hey. <laughs> Are you the one who said that you were stalking me on yeah. Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> 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 but basically, I have been off work for a long time, sick, mm -hmm. and when I was stuck in bed and all we had to move, I was taking notes, and I thought, oh, I should make a comic. But at the time, I don't, and I still now, I didn't have the mental strength mm -hmm. to spend all that time labouring and putting out all the pain I was going through. 
So I could only deal with writing notes. And I thought, once I'd processed and worked it out in my head, I'll come back and do something. Did you find while you were, you were off and you were struggling and suffering, it really difficult to produce? Or did you find it cathartic and therapeutic to reflect as you were suffering? Does that make sense? It does. Um, and definitely harder to produce when suffering. But the suffering is not that that trajectory does not coincide with the injury and the intensity of the pain. So like I was saying at the beginning of it, I was in like great spirits and had no, had no like real negative attitudes about it. Um, and maybe, sorry, negative attitude is not how I want to say it because that sounds really blamey. Like I, I was not, I was not like really feeling sad and desperate about being in pain. I was just like, okay, I'm in pain. I'm, I'm handling this and feeling like I was handling it no problem. I could work and I was, well, not no problems because the work was hard to do. Like that was its own emotional struggle. But it's only like as things got like longer and longer that I started to sort of lose my grip on like I'm, I'm going to get better one day and then being afraid of everything again and, and feeling like I was alone, like that thing was the worst. That uh, made it very, very hard to work. And I've experienced that like at many points in my life. And in fact, for like like, if we'd talked, like, two months ago, I would have been like, this is happening right now. Like, I just feel so terrible that making work is this incredibly hard thing to do, and it doesn't make me feel better. Or it makes me feel better for, like, a little bit, and then I'm just back to feeling awful. So would, you, would you push through creating work, or would you go, actually, I need to stop doing this work right now, I'll come back to it with my mindset is better? Unfortunately, in that mindset, I don't really believe I'm going to get better. So it's just, I'm going to push through, because it, it's either going to happen or not happen, and if I stop, I might just never start again. And that's, that's just depression and anxiety. Like, those things are very self-feeding. Like, they, you know, being anxious begets being anxious, begets being anxious and being depressed. It's the same thing. It's like a really uh, difficult thing to get out of and certainly usually for me uh, has to be done like in conjunction with other people. I like don't do it alone. So, I don't know, but the world doesn't go like, oh, you're feeling really depressed right now. Like, okay, don't, don't work, just like, I have to keep doing this. Also, maybe doing it is kind of a hopeful thing of like, I have to keep doing this and maybe one day I will feel better and I'll be happy that I did this. Thanks a lot. Thank no you. problem. Yeah. Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.